Down to Earth with Amundi. Working today for all our tomorrows. This is News Talk. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg. This is News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits to our planet's resources. From climate change to species extinction, we're going to cover the toughest challenges with leading experts and celebrated thinkers. You're going to hear diverse views as we try and find common ground in how to fix our most pressing global crises. On the show today, take a deep breath as we talk about air pollution. Dr. Claire Noon explains why Ireland's air quality is no laughing matter. Dr. Luke Clancy on life before and after the smoky coal ban. Martin Fitzpatrick on what we need to do to breathe easier. And comedian writer Maeve Higgins will be our first guest on My Green Life, where we'll find out about how she relates to environmental issues in her everyday life. It's time to head down to earth. Now to my first guest. The issue of air pollution is a serious one, with World Health Organization reporting that 95% of the world's population is actually breathing unsafe air. And to discuss where we're at in tackling this health emergency, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Claire Noon, who's a scientist at the Ryan Institute's Center for Climate and Air Pollution Studies at NUI Galway. Claire, over the year, we've seen how the COVID restrictions have actually improved air quality to some extent due to us traveling less and less emissions from vehicles. And I think many of us have even been able to observe this firsthand as the visibility in our local areas improve. But at the same time, we're all hunkered down at home over winter, lighting fires to stay warm and comfy. Could we actually be creating more air pollution by lighting these home fires? Oh, like definitely. Like while we saw a reduction in air pollution uh, related to traffic during the first lockdown, definitely during this uh, third lockdown, there has been an increase in air pollution due to home fires. So we are definitely um, we are definitely burning probably more uh, home fires at home. So how bad is this air pollution in Ireland? Uh, The World Health Organization estimates that 1,500 premature deaths per year are due to pollution in Ireland, actually, and 1,400,000 in, sorry, 400,000 in Europe. So so data from just last December show that air pollution levels in Dublin were nearly 15 times higher than the EU and the World Health Organization guidelines. So they were, I think they were reporting something like 400 in Ringsend and 300 in uh, Rathmines. 1,500 deaths per year. That's over two years. That's more people dying from air pollution in Ireland than from the COVID pandemic this year. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it is incredible. And it's kind of like, even if you were a climate denier, you cannot deny the air pollution. And anything that we do to help air pollution will help climate. So it's just a it's just a complete no-brainer. So what is this air pollution exactly that's so harmful for us? And, and what kind of health effects is it causing? So in Ireland, um, when we're talking about these home fires, they cause uh, the main source is a particulate matter. And um, from our data in Dublin, we show that um, solid fuels are burning is responsible for 70% of that particulate matter. Um, and what's really bad about that is that from the recent census, it just showed that only 13% of households actually use fires as their primary fuel source. So it must be that other people are actually comfort burning. Why why is it so bad for us? Yeah, it's so bad for us because it's a deadly pollutant. It's really, really tiny airborne particle um, and it can penetrate the lung barrier and enter the bloodstream. So it contributes to the risk of developing cardiovascular and respiratory disease as well as lung cancer. 
Now, the World Health Organization, who we've referred to a lot because they've done great work on this, but they've described polluted air as a public health emergency with over 7 million deaths per year linked to air pollution around the world. But is this really just an emergency for poor countries rather than developed countries like Ireland and our neighbours? No, not necessarily, actually, because pump fires are a problem in other countries across Europe as well. And across the water in England, they're actually planning uh, to roll out a ban on coal and wet wood. And also there was a very interesting development in England um, last December in terms of a court decision. So there was a landmark uh, air pollution court decision in the case of Ella Cassidebra. So in February 2013, she was actually rushed to hospital, but she died of a fatal asthma attack. And she was only nine years old. Uh, so the coroner ruled that air pollution was a contributory factor in Ella's death. So she actually su- uh, suffered severe asthma in the area of South London that she grew up in. Um, and, and she was exposed to um, levels of air pollution that exceeded the EU limits. That is so tragic. And was that because she lived near a road or what sources was she being exposed to? Yeah, yeah she was living near um, a play- London's had Circular Road. And they said that in the period um, of three years before she she passed away she had been exposed to uh, nitrogen dioxide and particulate matter levels that exceeded the uh, world health organization guidelines and what was really so sad about it was that her mom said that she didn't know about air pollution and she didn't know that it was causing her child to be sick and she said that if she had known that she would have moved away from there so i think it's just heartbreaking like Absolutely heartbreaking. And we've seen similar um, unusual cases coming up, I think, in France recently. Was there a a refugee case uh, resulting in an air pollution? Yeah, this this would be a huge case as well. It was a climate court um, case in France. So a Bangladeshi refugee with asthma, he avoided deportation from France after a court ruled that pollution in his native country could potentially kill him. So it was the first case in the world where the environment has been cited by a court in an extradition hearing. And this is kind of really important because the United Nations predicts that there will be over 250 million climate refugees worldwide by 2050. Asthma is a huge problem here in Ireland. I think we have a very high incidence of it. And so we're particularly susceptible. The the Stream Air app that you've been involved in developing at the Ryan Institute tries to forecast air pollution events before they happen. But how can this actually help solve the problem? I suppose, um, well, yeah, I suppose it would help raise awareness, first of all, of air pollution. So people know that we do actually have an air pollution here in Ireland. People think that Ireland is very green and that, it, you know, everything is just perfect. Um, and, it, and it isn't. So it might actually encourage as well behavioural change. So if people knew that there was going to be a particulate matter pollution event forecasted, you know, because of the meteorology. So that, that usually means that the wind is, uh, there's low wind and it's going to be very cold. Then perhaps they will just not burn that fire tonight and maybe just put on their electricity instead. You're listening to Down to Earth. My guest right now is Dr. Claire Noon, a scientist at the Ryan Institute's Centre for Climate and Air Pollution Studies at NUI Galway. Claire, aside from changing our own behaviour in response to these air pollution events, what do you think should be done on a national level to reduce air pollution in Ireland? Yeah, well, I suppose apart from the national smoky uh, fuel ban, Home renovations will have a huge impact because they'll make homes much warmer and people won't have to use fires as much. But ultimately, we do need to actually just stop burning stuff in our homes and that would fight air pollution and it would also tackle the climate emergency. Um, but my colleague, Dr. Yurgita Avadmavaita, she always advocates that um, one of the short term solutions could be to subsidize uh, clean electricity and even natural gas for these forecasted uh, pollution events. 
So you're saying we stop burning solid fuels, we retrofit houses, and we actually subsidize electricity instead of giving people a fuel allowance? Definitely. <laughs> 100%. Because I know I was listening to EcoEye during the week and Hannah Daly was on and she said that a third of homes in Ireland are in fuel poverty. So we need to subsidize something else other than solid fuel. So subsidizing green electricity would be just a fantastic idea, I think. That sounds like a good plan. Maybe uh, maybe you're the next minister for energy, <laughs> Dr. Claire Noon. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Dr. Claire Noon, a scientist at the Ryan Institute Center for Climate and Air Pollution Studies at NUI Galway. Thank you so much for joining us on Down to Earth. Up next, we speak to the man who led the charge in advocating to ban smoky coal in Dublin in the 1980s. Down to Earth with Amundi. Working today for all our tomorrows. This is News Talk. You're listening to Down to Earth here on News Talk with me, Dr. Cara Agassenborg. We've been talking about smoky coal in Ireland since the 1980s, but the issue has resurfaced recently as the government is moving to ban sales nationally. So what about the smoky coal ban? Well, my next guest has been hailed as a pioneer of respiratory medicine and was at the forefront of advocating to ban smoky coal in Ireland in the 1980s. Professor Luke Clancy is Director General of the Tobacco Free Research Institute in Ireland. Welcome to the program, Professor Clancy. You were one of the first physicians in Ireland to witness the effects of the burning of solid fuels on your patients' health. Can you take us through the, the early days of your career as you started to make that connection? Well, it was the uh, early 80s. I had just returned from the UK where I did my uh, specialist training. And I took up a position as consultant physician at St. James's and Bag Street Hospitals. I was new in town and also the specialty was new. It had been almost exclusively about TB in the times pre that. So the new uh, respiratory medicine units in the general hospitals was to take care of respiratory infections and lung cancer, as well as tuberculosis and other uh, lung diseases, asthma in particular. So when I returned, I found that um, the winters here were not as I thought I remember them. I had not been in Dublin. I never lived in Dublin before that. I was from Galway and had lived there when it went to UK from there. So it was a surprise to come back and find that Dublin of the 80s was very similar to London in the 50s, with a dense smog at certain times of the year. In many of the industrialized cities in Europe, air pollution is essentially due to manufacture. And that is, wasn't the case in Dublin, isn't the case in Dublin. Uh, Dublin, although it was a traffic hub and therefore had a lot of pollution from, from traffic, it also had a, an unusual problem in that the most of the pollution was caused uh, by domestic fuel. Dublin had a lot of uh, individual housing, small houses, two-story houses, basically, uh, rather than high-rise. So each of these individual houses was uh, spewing out uh, pollution. Because of the oil crisis in the Middle East, the government and the local authorities had encouraged all builders to put in fires, grates, open fires in all of the, the social housing in particular. So they were burning uh, solid fuel. And of course, as the colder it got, the more they had to burn. 
it's incredible to think that the oil embargo led to us burning more coal in, in Dublin. The London smog uh, events in, in the 1950s, they resulted in about 52 deaths per 100,000. How bad was the situation in Dublin at the time? London's a much bigger city, so the total mortality uh, was um, more. But the rate of people dying was, was quite similar. I think I was about 447 and there's was 52. So that it wasn't appreciated that... This is where the kind of shock came for me. With this new respiratory unit at St. James's, we were expecting great things and we were going to cure all the respiratory illnesses. And in fact, uh, that winter of 82, 81, 82, we found that um, many people who were admitted with uh, chest diseases, with pneumonia, with chronic bronchitis, with asthma, were coming in and improving but not getting better and suddenly dying on us. We found that the case fortality, which was how many people of the patients admitted, how many of them died, we found that this doubled in the winter of, of 81. That, so in other words, twice as many people died as, as we would have expected with best care. So this was uh, very upsetting. It was obvious to all that the air was very bad, but we had been assured that it wasn't harmful because it was uh, just black smoke and that in London and other places, when people died, it was usually because the gases, uh, sulfur dioxide in particular, SO2, was high. And in Dublin, it was not high. So it was only uh, harmless, as, as, as we were told, black smoke. So this was not regarded as an adequate reason for the increased mortality. It was certainly remarkable. And when the weather improved, the mortality fell back again. Wow. So we were convinced that it was related to uh, smog and to air pollution. Just a reminder, this is News Talks Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Gustenberg, and we are talking to Professor Luke Clancy about air quality and the smoky coal ban. Professor Clancy, in 2002, you conducted a study with your colleagues demonstrating that more than 350 lives are saved every year in Dublin due to the improvement in air quality since the imposition of the smoky coal ban in 1990. That is a tremendous achievement to save over 10,000 lives to date as a result of your advocacy work in particular, but it took you 10 years of campaigning to achieve that success. So what were the challenges you faced over that decade of advocacy? Well, you are absolutely right. It, it did take a long time, but uh, and I was young that time, but we, it does actually take a long time. Most things like this that you try and do, they depend on quite a few aspects. Obviously, there's the science. Now, you need the science, but it's not enough. You also need the politics to be right. So you need timing, you need uh, politics, you need people. You know, um, for instance, I have more experience in a way, I was wiser and older when the smoking ban came. And we realized by then the importance of a political champion. There was no political champion for smoke-free. And I will come to the very important politicians but there wasn't a smoking champion like we had Michal Martin for the smoking ban. But what we found with uh, smog and leisure with smoke-free was that it was a, from the people it came. And in fact, in Dublin, 
very important community groups like Temple Oak, I remember in particular, they were very strong, the resident association, they said our children are suffering, this is bad for us. At a time when we were being told by the coal distributors and by the authorities that really it wasn't any harm. This was just unsightly, but not any harm. But the people were saying, yes, it is harm. Some of the uh, newspaper people got on board, in particular, Frank McDonald, the Irish Times, and Marion Finucane on the radio and David Hanley, so that there was a kind of a nidus where public opinion from the grassroots was being canvassed and brought together rather than from the top down, because the government and the politicians at the time were a bit embarrassed by the fact that they had mandated that these uh, fireplaces be put into these houses. And now they were going to have to say, well, really, they're causing trouble. We should stop them. So there was no political enthusiasm at the beginning for this. And uh, some of us uh, who approached the politicians at the time, approached uh, Mr. Hawley and approached Mr. Fitzgerald, we were told by Mr. Fitzgerald that it was going to cost too much. He'd love to do it, but it was going to cost too much, 180 million. Now, when you look back on this figure, that was the figure calculated by the coal industry, of course, and by the academics uh, who gave them this information and were commissioned to do it. And this was one of the reactions is that um, coal distributors brought out a booklet challenging what we had found. And it was came out in 85 and it was called Tours, a planned improvement in Dublin's air quality, where it said that really this was not the cause of the trouble and you couldn't be dying from this. And although what they called some commentators had suggested that the coal was causing the trouble and that the solid fuel, this wasn't really so. And we needed to have dispersion models and we needed to have investigations. So this was, and that it would cost 180 million if you did away with it. So this was where the government were getting their information. They weren't listening to the grassroots and they weren't listening to us clinicians and scientists, rather they were taking it from the industry. So you can imagine we weren't exactly, or I wasn't particularly hopeful when we were approaching them. Professor Clancy, about a fifth of Irish households use solid fuel exclusively as their heat source. So what's the solution for people that are dependent on solid fuels as a source of heating and maybe already at risk of cold-related mortality in this country? It really has to end. It has to end uh, from a climate change point of view as well as from a health point of view, an immediate health point of view. And the transition was made. It's, there are always uh, ways of getting around it. For instance, they were told to put in solid fuel, uh, as I suggested in the 80s. So now I think we've got to say it, they should not, and they've got to get away from the use of, of solid fuel. There are, as you um, know, objections to this from uh, distributors. I think at a time of pandemic, we see what can be done if politicians want to do it. Ban and smoky coal in Dublin occurred overnight with a drop, immediate drop in pollution levels and an immediate increase in health. That was feasible and possible then, uh, partially driven by the fact that um, natural gas was coming on board. But the problems now are different. They're less in many cases as regards air pollution. 
and individual solutions are more necessary than global and may not be all uh, doable in a short time. But to say that we cannot extend the ban because a few companies are going to bring the state to court, I find that really wrong. My thanks to Professor Luke Clancy, Director General of the Tobacco Free Research Institute Ireland, for his insight and for his incredible work over the years on the issue of smoky coal. Just a reminder that in a few minutes we'll be talking to comedian Maeve Higgins about her green life, where she'll tell us how she integrates environmental issues into her life on a daily basis. But before that, my next guest has seen the Dublin landscape literally go from black to white, or maybe beige, since the 1980s through his career as an environmental health officer. Martin Fitzpatrick heads the Air Quality and Noise Control Unit for Dublin City Council. Martin, tell us what Dublin City and the surrounding areas like Ballyfermot were like when you started monitoring air quality in the 1980s and how they've changed since. Hello, Cara. Thanks for having me on. Yes, it's very def- definitely a changed landscape. Uh, it's sometimes difficult to uh, get people to visualize exactly what Dublin lo- looked like back in the late 80s when there's a lot of coal use uh, in the city um, and virtually some of the some of the landmark buildings around the, the city center were actually black uh, uh, due to air pollution. Of course, the two examples I always give is both Trinity College and the Bank of Ireland, which have thankfully been cleaned up very successfully in the meantime. But there, there was literally a, a, a thick coat of black uh, tar, tarry smoke residue uh, on those buildings. Um, th- there's a lot of uh, media photographs from the time showing people wearing masks, walking around the city. It's a, it's a bit reminiscent of the situation at the moment, but then it was basically because the, the, the smoke you know, levels, particularly at night during the winter, were, were so choking that people felt they had to do this, go, you know, just going about their business. And this is all from what we refer to as smoky coal, is that right? Yeah, so back then, certainly, there was, there was a great dependence on burning smoky coal in, in, in open fires. So, obviously, things have improved a lot now. We don't have black buildings in Trinity College or the Bank of Ireland. But given the dramatic improvements in air quality that we've seen in places like Dublin and Cork, I think many people assume that that smoky coal ban has has happened nationwide. And, and they're really surprised to find out that hasn't happened yet. So can you explain what the status of smoky coal currently is in Ireland and why, after 20 years of talking about this being banned, it actually still isn't banned nationally? Well, well, unfortunately, it, it's actually it, it's on 30 years at this stage. Uh, so basically, back in 1990, when the initial uh, ban was brought in, uh, in in Dublin City, that was then rolled out to Cork. And then o- over the years, that evolved into taking in the larger cities and towns. Uh, and, and the idea was to bring the largest centres of population uh, w- w- within the ban. Uh, then in 2017, we had an announcement by the then minister that there would be a, a national ban on uh, on smoky coal. Uh, and that was welcomed and accepted, I think, you know, universally by both, you know, obviously within local authorities, by the public and even by the industry where had pivoted themselves to actually move towards that. Uh, unfortunately, as we understand it, that they're given the threat of legal action by coal suppliers in Northern Ireland in relation to this particular initiative uh, because they they put forward the position that they want to see other solid fuels included in any, any potential national ban. So that has actually held it up. Um, but I think in the meantime, I think what has happened is that in many respects, the public have actually 
behaved as if there is a national ban in many cases and many people seek out uh, lower smoke uh, solid fuel alternatives uh, voluntarily. Uh, and I think that's an important element of this particular discussion because enforcement and bans certainly bring you, it sets the framework, it sets the scene, but at the end of the day, it's about people making the right decisions and actually using the information they have to make good decisions in terms of their own air quality and their locality and their health that really drives change. That's really positive to hear. I, I actually thought that there was a perception that smoky coal was was more economical and, and you know, that maybe we were banning it because it, it had benefits that people wanted to avail of. But, but what you're saying is people are actually, they've stopped using it in general anyway. Why hasn't it just phased itself out? Well, I think, I think, I think in Ireland we have an affinity towards fires and there is a, you know, a lot of people, you know, uh, would associate that comfort factor with an open fire or with a stove. And so it, it always holds that attractiveness. And when we actually start to look at how people use solid fuels in their homes, uh, you know, it's very clear from the census data that not, you know, not that many homes actually depend on solid fuel as their primary source of central heating. So it raises the issue then if people are burning it and you know buying it, why is that? And and the, the thinking would be there's a there's a large comfort factor involved for many people in terms of actually continuing to use uh, solid fuels. That's not the case for everyone, that has to be said. Obviously, there, there, there are homes uh, across the country uh, that, that are continuing to use um, you know solid fuels as their central heating. But if you look at the overall numbers, it's actually quite small. If I did have to use uh, solid fuel for for heating, would smoky coal, coal be you know give me more bang for my buck in terms of heat output than regular coal? Yeah, I think that's a that's a really interesting question. I think if if you look at the data supplied by the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, basically in terms of the the efficient use of energy you get from a uh, from, from either from either smoky or low smoke coal, it seems. Pretty similar. That there's no there's no real difference uh, price wise. Uh, what is interesting though, and and this is what the certainly that the solid fuel industry can you know will 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 say and they can demonstrate is that um, low smoke coal actually burns differently. So it's a much more it's a it's a more controlled burn. It burns longer, so you get a more sustained heat over a period of time. So looking at the figures, they were that it would suggest there's perhaps you know something in the in the order of an eighteen percent differential in terms of what 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 you get from low smoke coal compared to smoky coal. You get eighteen percent less heat output from. No, low... sorry, you're you're getting actually an eighteen percent more bang for your buck with low smoke coal. With low smoke coal, so yeah. it's a no-brainer, really, uh, in terms of which one you should choose. But we also know, of course, that that coal has an impact on climate change, and and we now know that that paper cuts and wood are as bad as coal for air pollution. And yet, the Central Statistics Office says that approximately sixty percent of Irish households continue to use a stove, a range, or an open fire as a secondary heating source, as you said, for comfort heating. And a majority of them are using solid fuels. So, what should those households that are still using solid fuel for comfort heating be doing differently, particularly in these cold winter months when their stoves and fires are causing air pollution? First, obviously, the, the economic argument is, is an important one. The human health one is an important one. The climate change argument is also there. There's also, in terms of the effect that that, that burning that fuel has indoors to the actual occupants in the house is actually an important discussion as well. 
but, but I think in, in terms of what people should bear in mind, firstly, that, you know, that there's two issues here. There's the fuel that people burn and there's the appliance that they burn it in. So for instance, if you take, if, if people are burning any fuel uh, in an open fire, the chances are the, the efficiency of an open fire is something or is somewhere between 20 and 30%, which means 70% to 80% of your energy and your money is simply going up the chimney and you're getting no benefit from that. that so that, that's, that's, an that's an important thing to bear in mind. Uh, I then think secondly, in terms of uh, solid fuel stoves, Obviously, they are they are more efficient, but you're using what is a is you know kilo per kilo a more expensive fuel uh, in, in, in order to, in order to operate them. So the question I would pose to people is: you know, first of all, okay, we understand the comfort factor involved, but a do you need that comfort factor every night? Uh, and b in terms of looking outside your window and seeing what air conditions are like, what the weather conditions are like on, on a given night, but asking yourself, well, I can see tonight that it looks like it could be a foggy night, it looks like it could be very cold, there's no wind. Is this the night that I use my own personal judging and, you know, in terms of my own personal behaviour, it's like maybe this isn't the night that I light the fire. So I'll be honest, Martin, I have a gorgeous wood-burning stove in my home that I light on just on special occasions. And, and I know from what you're telling me, the right thing to do is to rip it up and close the flue and not use it. But let's just say hypothetically, I still want the odd fire for the Christmas dinner or the special occasion. How, what should I doing, be doing differently with my stove to try and avoid poisoning my neighbors or my family with particulate matter? Okay, well, certainly the first thing I suggest, and this is the thing that we're all guilty of, read the manual. I, I don't have any evidence to back this up, but I think in my own head, because I'm as guilty as the next person, I get manuals with all the household appliance I, appliances I buy. I probably scan through them. They go into a drawer and I never open them again. It's really important if you have uh, a solid fuel uh, stove, I'm you actually to. go through and follow the Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to actually pull out my manual now, try and find that manual for my stove from many moons ago. Uh, and in terms of fuel, Absolutely. do you have a recommendation on what fuel I should be using? Okay. Well, first things first, not, not every fuel can be used in every stove. That's really important. It's important not just in terms of air quality, but it's also important in terms of fire safety within your home. So that, that's one important message. I think then the second thing is in terms of how you're actually using the fuel in your stove, uh, and I think everyone who lights a fire is probably guilty of it. You want as big a fire as you possibly can. So when you look at typical manufacturers' um, recommendations is don't overfill the fire. You know, as, as a rule of thumb, it should come up to only about halfway within the glass, within the stove. Uh, in terms of, particularly if you're using wood, it's important to use wood that's very dry. The, the standard we would suggest is it should be have less than 20% moisture. Um, you, you've got to shop around to get wood of that quality. A lot of what might be available on the market will have moisture content well in excess of 20%. Going back to what the manufacturer says, there's, there's quite detailed instruction how you use the dampener uh, uh, on a stove. So basically you're getting, as you light the fire, you're getting that strong current of air underneath the fuel during the ignition phase, and then how you use the dampener during, during the, the fire operating over, over, the, over the evening. So these are all really important issues. The other one that's also uh, important to think about is how you light the fire. Um, most of us start the way we, we, we learned 
all those years ago, we light a fire from the bottom. You need to think about perhaps lighting the fire from the top, and there are techniques to do that. The benefit of that is it heats the top of the stove and your flue quickly, which will help generate less smoke during that initial light up phase. But I think that the take home message is like, like any household appliance you have, dig out the manual, have a read through it, make sure you're using it correctly, make sure you're using the right fuel and you're using it in a way that's as, as least damaging for the environment as possible, but also in a way that are safe for you and your household. Martin, I've been doing it all wrong this whole time. Thank you so much for clarifying. I'm going to have to go home and practice now. It seems the days of standing by a fire to keep warm clearly belong to the cavemen. Thanks to my guests, Dr. Claire Noon, Professor Luke Clancy, and Martin Fitzpatrick for contributing to this episode of Down to Earth. Stay tuned, as coming up next, Maeve Higgins will be telling me about her green life. Down to Earth with Amundi. Working today for all our tomorrows. This is News Talk. You're listening to Down to Earth here on News Talk with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg. Each week here on Down to Earth, we'll be digging into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. Today, it's the turn of comedian, author, and contributing writer to the New York Times, Maeve Higgins. Maeve, it's an honor to get to chat to you about your green life. <laughs> it's an honor to be here. Thank you, Cara. I love that you're doing this show, by the way. Oh. I'm so, I was so glad to hear that it exists and I look forward to hearing it. That's great to hear. I followed your comedy work since your days on Naked Camera, but I was really thrilled about three years ago when you began co-hosting the Mothers of Invention podcast with the former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson. And it was on a topic that was really near and dear to my heart, the whole topic of climate change and climate justice. How did you end up going on that journey from comedian to hosting a podcast about a, a rather unhumorous topic like climate change? I know. Um, well, I think, you know, for many years, of course, Mary Robinson has been a huge fan of mine and she sees me as kind of a mentor. <laughs> and <laughs> of course, um, of co- I mean, of course. No, I mean, I've, uh, you know, Mary Robinson was president when I was a little kid like I think I was eight when she became president and um I've always followed her work especially her humanitarian work her work um you know with the UN on human rights and she actually went to a a production company and said she want she was considering making a film because climate justice which is the um kind of like the intersection of you know climate and human rights mm-hmm. um that's her complete passion and I would say obsession and very necessarily so um and she just knows so much about it and she's in so deep so she considered making a film and then the production company said look what about a podcast like they're so accessible anybody with the phone you know and an internet and the internet can download it and we can make it fast and turn it around and include a lot of um voices of people who are working you know on climate justice so that's how the podcast came to be and then they kind of thought well it would be good for her to have like a sidekick somebody who's used to podcasting and um that's where I came in and it was so great because I had already been kind of frozen Cara in a way that's not like me when it comes to climate chaos because I understand what's happening and years ago, I understood what was happening, but I didn't know what I could do about it. So you were overwhelmed. 
yeah that's exactly the word and not to like shame or blame anyone who still feels that way because I when I think of it when I was small the you know I heard a lot about the hole in the ozone layer or the whales who were you know we had to save them and those two things are important and true but to me they felt you know as a child it felt very far away um and it wasn't until I kind of got older and realized the hugeness of the um chaos that we're facing and that a lot of people are already experiencing and I didn't have tools to to even think it through let alone to start taking action so I was really happy to jump on and learn more through um through a podcast with Mary Robinson like you know now I know you you've had some negative experiences swimming with dolphins but were there any environmental issues that you were particularly (laughs) that you were particularly interested in before you started co-hosting Mothers of Invention aside from dolphins obviously (laughs) um yeah so I'm I I actually love animals and I respect wild animals but yeah once I went swimming with dolphins in New Zealand and it was such a nightmare and and they were so mean to me and I felt they were um like the opposite of the cute you know cuddly fungi that we have or or sadly Uh had here um so it was more for me um about I started to get interested in migration about eight to ten years ago when I first became a migrant I moved to New York and realized how different my experience was to other migrants right like how lucky I was to be white European you know educated all of that made my travels around the world a lot easier and I started to think oh but like what if I had to leave you know I could stay in Ireland I'm so lucky to be from Ireland a place where I could have a safe life and be economically sound and all of that but um, there's so many people and the number is growing every day, I would say. is not an exaggeration. Yeah. Uh, people who have to move because of climate events. So that could be um, heat, that could be flooding, that could be uh, a war caused by a drought, which, you know, we see that, you know, was a contributing factor in the Syrian conflict. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, you know, I started to kind of look back and think a bit bigger um and all of those interests came like migration and climate they all came to really intrigue me and horrify me um and to see uh in a funny way like looking at myself and how you know growing up in Ireland yes there are things like my um I'm from a farming family and my dad would often say god like there's no seagulls following along now when my uncle was out plowing you know because there's not the same number of worms in the ground and there's fewer seagulls too you know things like small like in a horror film when you notice like little things happening yeah yeah I mean farmers are always on the front line of witnessing Mm -hmm. the effects of climate change completely what was the most surprising thing you learned from your time co-hosting mothers of invention not to be cheesy, Cara, or not to also not to put it on individuals, but I did learn that there are actions we can take as individuals that can, um, you know, in in cahoots with others can actually help and can change things, change things like um, institutions, change things like legislation and change things like policy. Um, so I kind of learned that like taking small steps, um, and here now I'm not speaking about, um, 
exactly like recycling or even though that's important and fantastic but I mean small things I could do like I I changed bank and I was surprised because um you know I bank with Chase Bank in the US it's you know huge and it's really easy and they have ATMs everywhere and it's got a great app and it's just easy but um I found out because of activists that they also fund the fossil fuel industry so it's like easy okay well I don't want to help that um and so I found that by moving bank which by the way I'm not a very organized person so like it was kind of a pain like I kept meaning to do it and then I was like I pay off my card oh I kept me so um but eventually I did it and then you know I put it on my Instagram we talked about it on the podcast and it was got a huge reaction because I think people feel disempowered and there's things they don't know that they could do you know um living in New York you can request a tree to be planted in your um in your street now I understand this is tiny and that individuals are not the ones making the um you know causing the most damage it's corporations and it's governments but these things uh empower you and then they make me you know I wrote to my local councillor when I saw a big uh in the summer this year, it was a very hot summer in New York, and I saw hundreds of fish dying in, in the Hudson. Um, so I kind of wrote to my local councillor, like stuff like that, Cara, where before I wasn't engaged and now I am. And I feel like I have, um, I'm trying to think of a sporting metaphor, but I'm not very sporty. Skin in the game, <laughs> expression. Like I have, I have a ball in the air. Like, I don't know, I have a goal to kick. <laughs> so you've, you've become politicized, it sounds like, as a result of your, your podcasting experience. Would that be safe to say? Yeah, and not just the podcast, just as a result of meeting people who are really doing the work. And, you know, on the show, we it's called Mothers of Invention, and we speak to women who are working actively for climate uh, justice. So that could be, you know, a Black Lives Matter activist who's also a geographer working in L.A., uh, talking about how um, more trees can prevent, you know, urban heat spots because more people of color die in L.A. from heat related um, heat exhaustion, strokes brought on, you know, than white people. So it's all so connected. And I think my interest in migration and my interest in racial justice, all of that is covered by climate because it's all very connected. Just a reminder, you're listening to Down to Earth on News Talk. We're talking to comedian Maeve Higgins about her green life. Maeve, you've co-hosted podcasts now with two of the world's most famous climate communicators, former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson. And I've also read that you co-hosted one with Neil deGrasse Tyson, who I'm a huge fan of on, on Star Talk. How did they actually shape your views? I think with, with Mary Robinson, she's very, um, how did she shape my views? I think her her attitude of urgency and that we can and must act, that was you know she takes it out of the abstract and I think when you when you know that and you're around that energy it's very compelling you know to act yourself and I think how she does that is she understands the real impacts on people right like she has friends and and people that she's met communities all over the world in you know in Africa in the Middle East in America and she can see the 
how devastating, uh, you know, weather events are and, um, you know, how women and children are affected first and worst by climate events. And she can see the long-term implications too, right? When you think about, well, what are we going to do about borders in the future when everybody has to move? Um, so she's, I think she kind of compelled me to more action. And then with Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's wonderful, uh, of course, scientist and communicator and his podcast, Star Talk, which I've worked on, um, he again has a long view, which is really important, I think. And he also, I spoke to him actually about migration before, and I think, uh, he said something like where, you know, when we say where we're from, like where we law the, where we draw the line is arbitrary. And that really stuck with me because, you know, we identify as like, I'm Irish, I'm American, I, you know, well, I have roots in Spain or whatever, but like, ultimately we're just making that up <laughs> it's like we're all from the same place and we're all made of the same um material and again that can sound wishy-washy but this is a great mind he's one of you know the foremost intellectuals of our time and that is what he told me so um forgetting about uh you know the the fights that happen over climate policy which i understand are important you know things like well, what if we have a carbon tax, blah, blah. Ultimately, this is so huge. <laughs> and this is so, um, you know, about the survival of, uh, not of the earth, the earth will be fine, but it's about the survival of, you know, the human species and also the other species that have given us so much. Yeah, and of course, climate change knows no boundaries. So speaking of boundaries and where you're from, I feel like you and I have kind of traded places because I grew up in America and moved to Ireland. And now mm -hmm. you grew up in Ireland, you've you've moved to America. Living in America now, what kind of differences do you see between America's relationship with the environment and Irish people's? Yeah, I mean, I suppose that um, it comes into focus very sharply when you live in you know a wealthy country, right? Like, I don't know that I agree that climate change has no boundaries because I think more and more um, the boundary is if, if you're wealthy or if you're poor. Because I see in the US, in New York, where I live, um, I have AC when the heat gets too much. And like, I'm the palest person imaginable. And I can't, <laughs> I can't stand the heat. So like, but I have air conditioning in my apartment and I would only go to places that have air, you know, um, I can afford to get a car. I don't have to be like sweltering on the subway or whatever. But um, there's lots of people who are stuck on, you know, these urban heat islands who don't have access to um, trees or fresh air. And people of color, as I mentioned before, are more likely to actually die from um, the heat in the US. So there's there are boundaries everywhere. And then of course we know, look at Bangladesh, you know, prone to flooding. If it floods there, you're much more likely to suffer than if you're flooded, say in Cove where I'm from, you know, because there are safety nets in place and you'll, it's, it's awful for a little while, but you can build back or you'll get help from the federal, from the government. So it's, it's very unequal. Like the impacts are extremely unequal and, I think, as with everything in the US, that's magnified. So you see it, it's very in your face in the US. And 
it's also interesting to live in a city because I think I can sometimes I'm guilty of separating myself I think oh nature is I'll go to the park or like I'll go upstate to the woods but nature is everywhere and nature is us too like it's not that we're separate from nature and better than and in control of nature but it can feel that way when you're in a city when it's kind of like look what we've done like we've built these massive tower blocks but I I spoke to Tara Hauska a few times on the podcast and she's a really cool um she was a litigator in DC and she's you know a Native American and she now is back fighting the pipeline and she talked about how she would go from meetings with like banks Deutsche Bank and talk to them about divestment and she would take a moment to remind the executives that she was sitting with so this table that you're sitting on it's glass that is sand that comes from the you know like and these walls they are stone stone comes from the earth like you're just another element in all of this and it's so confronting when you think about it that way because we have this attitude a lot of us have this attitude I think some you know like you mentioned farmers earlier people that are closer to the land understand more like the the systems that we're part of but living in a city it's easy to get removed from that so it was a good wake-up call for me living in New York to to talk to these women and to remember you know what what I am yeah, I'm looking at my desk right now, and it's clearly made of plastic, unfortunately. <laughs> Do you think that uh, that Irish... Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, plastic is made from oil. Fossil oil fuel. From yeah. Very yeah. Good. Uh, Do you think Irish people are more connected to nature than American people? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think um, America is very vast, and, you know, I suppose you, there's different ways you can measure it. You know, I think that you know, Ireland's emissions are not good. Uh, Ireland's, Ireland is not great on climate. Like even Leo Varadkar called us a, a laggard uh, a few years ago. So it's a cute idea that, you know, oh, because we, you know, have this uh, ancient connection to the land that we can, that we still live that way. But I don't, it doesn't really hold up. I mean, I think that there's really exciting moves here being made by Climate Case Ireland. And there's loads of amazing activists who've been going for years, you know, uh, the turf, the fracking, the pylon, you know, Mm -hmm. there's pockets of it, yes. But I wouldn't say, um, you know, that we're better than, it's hard, it's hard. Like the the country is so different. The populations are so different. but I definitely wouldn't be comfortable saying that. No, I think Ireland has a, a massive problem. And and we know it, though. We do know it. Mm-hmm. My thanks to Maeve Higgins, Irish woman living in New York, contributing writer at The New York Times and author of Maeve in America. And that's it for the first episode of Down to Earth. Thank you for listening. And be sure to subscribe to the series on podcast at Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app. Next week, it's all about electricity. What will the supply look like in a fossil-free future? But until then, take care. Down to Earth with Amundi. Working today for all our tomorrows. This is News Talk.